So the first thing we did when we bought it, I'll share this with you, mm. is because perception is reality with your tenants. And when we bought this property, I don't have any images here, but there was... Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larvey. Welcome back. It's Sarah Larby. You are listening to Where Should I Invest? I have another great guest today. You might have heard him on a past episode, the one and only Marcin Droves, who is a really successful multifamily real estate investor, has uh, acquired a lot and also has been able to get really, really good at getting money and raising funds and raising money to do a lot of these deals. And so we talk about how to invest in large multifamily properties in the U.S. specifically, and he does a lot of business in Memphis, Tennessee. We talk about VTBs, how to close on large deals, how to take a distressed property and make it bankable, and so many more things. So I hope you guys enjoyed today's podcast. Don't forget to leave a rating and review. And also, October 6th, we have a live event in Markham. If you are interested in attending a live real estate event with food and drinks and comedy and music and so much more, send me an email, sarah at sarahlarby.com. I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. Marcin, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me again. Good, good. Yeah, it's been a while. I want to say probably a couple years since you've been on the podcast last and I wanted to reach out to you again and bring you back in because you've done some big deals since and uh, and I definitely want to dissect them and, uh, and hear what you've been up to since then. But folks listening to this, I would suggest that you, uh, you go back to listen to Marcin's first episode just for people just to catch them up. Can you just give us a, a, bit, of a bit of a 30,000 foot view on uh, what you do when it comes to real estate investing? Sure. Uh, I'd love to. Uh, buy stuff, fix it, refinance it, do it again. <laughs> so essentially the Burr strategy. Uh, it's Burr, uh, Burr, 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 uh, Big Burr. You know, uh, it, uh, we, we, we focus on uh, U.S. Uh, multifamily, uh, workforce housing. Awesome. All right. So now you are Canadian. Yes. You normally reside in Ontario and you are buying in the U.S. What are, and you're buying big buildings in the U.S., what are some things that you have potentially struggled with uh, as a Canadian buying into the U.S. that we should be aware of? <laughs> well, the first question is why. <laughs> <laughs> sure, let's, let's do that. <laughs> the first, first question is why. I mean, people, uh, you know, I've been guilty of it before uh, myself, Sarah, is where, where you get comfortable investing in your own backyard, wherever, wherever it's Toronto, Winnipeg, uh, Edmonton, wherever you're investing. It's, it's easy to kind of have the blinders on and look where you live. So, you know, I, I've lived all over Canada and like yourself, I've done a lot of different uh, deals, residential, commercial, multifam. And a few years ago, um, actually back in 2010, I uh, started in US uh, when I worked with a private equity firm and we were buying multifamily back then in Phoenix. And uh, like yourself, I was always like, why, why US, why not Canada? You know, we're so much friendlier here. We've got, you know, so much more, you know, there's opportunity here. Why, you know, is the grass really greener somewhere else? And for me, um, it was, uh, you know, Canada pricing, real estate, you know, we, we, I'm sure I've listened to some of your podcasts. You've had people on here and, you know, prices are, they are what they are. Now the U.S. it's interesting because 
if if you if you if you tell me about a tertiary market here in Canada, you're probably thinking like Timmins or like a 50,000, 80,000, you know, Prince uh, Albert, small town like that. If you're talking tertiary market or secondary market in the US, it's a million people. <laughs> so it's a totally different big scale. Difference, yeah. it, 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 it's a big scale. So, you know, from a US perspective, when they talk about secondary tertiary markets to us as Canadians, that is a Calgary, that is a Toronto, that is a, you know, fill in the blank, Mississauga, right? So, uh, because of that, there's this opportunity in the U.S. when you combine the fact that the big guys don't look at towns that are a million people, which to you and me is crazy. Uh, and you combine that with the fact that you're able to buy apartment buildings in a lot of these towns for anywhere from twenty to $50,000 a door, where in Canada, you can't even buy a parking spot for twenty five grand anymore. <laughs> um, you know, that, that, that's a very compelling conversation to, to, to start things uh, off. Now, obviously, you have to educate people, uh, some of our partners, even myself, when we went down there and wrote the checks, you wanted to make sure people were familiar. But I think out of the gate, that was the biggest question. Why? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've had a few people on the show recently that have invested in the U.S. And mm -hmm. I mean, like like you said, it doesn't always have to be our own backyard. I, I think there's pros and cons to uh, to go, you know, going both routes and uh, and diversification is uh, is definitely not a bad idea, um, mm -hmm. you know, especially with with so much unknown, uh, you know, for the future. So where so where in the U.S. Uh, are you currently investing right now? So we drew a map around a few major hubs, a few MSAs that were between one and one and a half million people. And the market we were most excited about was Memphis, Memphis, Tennessee, Memphis, the birthplace of Elvis, Memphis, you know, pork and ribs, beans, potatoes, you know, it's just a, it, it's a very uh, blue collar town. And, you know, even pre COVID, uh, it was a great place to be. And now post COVID with, so many people shifting to you know buying things with a little button on their screen uh, logistics are even more important so you know memphis has uh, fedex's global world headquarters is in memphis nike built an additional two million square feet in memphis uh, over a third of their sales now post covid are direct to consumers so people aren't going to footlocker anymore to buy their shoes you know they're they're buying directly online and, and that has a massive, you know, uh, change. Uh, Amazon built a, a facility there. Google built their first uh, uh, American, uh, I'm going to confuse this, but they have a technical uh, facility for customer service. Their first one that they built in the U.S. They actually built it uh, just south of Memphis, literally 20, 30 miles down. So there's, even pre-COVID, there were a lot of reasons, but now post-COVID with the infrastructure and the delivery and warehousing and logistics becoming so much more important. Um, yeah, we're, you know, last time I was down there, you couldn't turn the TV on without an ad for a job. And this is post COVID. Yeah, absolutely. So are you going to Memphis and traveling to Memphis and looking at these properties or do you have a team out there in place? Like how are you managing that, uh, you know, being Canadian uh, living in, in Toronto? Yeah, uh, good question. So both. Uh, my partner and I were both Canadians. Uh, he'd actually moved down there full time uh, early last year, set up a team, brought in property management. And of course, there's two schools of thought. You can hire property management or you can build the infrastructure. 
given that we bought a couple hundred units, we thought it was easier just to you know, build that into it, uh, build it into the formula ourselves. And um, yeah, as far as the opportunity, it, to me, it was one of those things where even during COVID, it was like, okay, how do I get on a plane? Like, how do I do this? Because we, uh, you know, like the, the building we bought last year, when you and I had talked uh, a few months before then, but after that, I bought a building, it was 82 units, and we paid about one point, I think it was $1.6 million for it, for 82 units. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Now, what kind of, just out of curiosity, like what kind of rent, you know, for something that's, uh, that's that big at that price, like per unit, are you mm-hmm. getting? Yeah. So the, when we bought it, we had built into our Performa uh, rents for two bed, one baths at five ninety five, And uh, we're actually getting over 700 uh, now that the units are finished and, and being rented. So the way I looked at uh, the math, uh, you know, using the Burr model and the thought process, being able to refinance, I thought to myself, okay, $20,000 a door, I get $600 a month rent, that's 7,200. So my GRM gross rent multiplier was like three. So I, you know, I did the math a few times because three is not a number that you get in Canada. It's usually 13 or 130 or whatever, yeah, yeah, whatever it is. So, you know, the gross rent is really high relative to the purchase price. And uh, at the end of the day, if I had to put that building up from scratch, I had it quoted without the land and it was, I think, $85,000 a door. So I'm buying for 20 a door. I'm probably spending about 10 or 15 a door for rentals on the high end. And, you know, you've got a unit that fully finished, you know, six, $700 a month rent. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey guys, I just want to take a quick moment here and pause the podcast to introduce you to one of my favorite contractors, John from Blackjack Contracting Inc. And he has been serving the Niagara, Hamilton and Brantford areas for the past three years and has become the area's legal basement suite renovation specialist. He works with many investors that I know and some newer investors, some more experienced investors, and he converts single family homes into multiple units, as well as my favorite strategy, the Burr strategy. So he's well-versed in those as well to make sure that we can achieve the maximum value of the property and the maximum ARV. He has also completed over 100 units from Brantford to Niagara Falls, and everywhere in between as well. They do everything from permitting to the design to the final cleaning before listing our rentals for rent or for sale. And he's also a fully licensed electrical contractor. He's certified with ESA and he will take jobs of all sizes. So no job is too big. He's done a complete guts really from the ground up. So super impressed with his work and what he's been doing for fellow investors that I know as well. So if you wanted to reach out, his website is blackjack contractinginc.ca and you can ask him whatever questions you have. You can also reach out to him Instagram, which is at Blackjack Contracting Inc. And like he says, he knows that investing feels like the biggest gamble of our lives. So when you have Blackjack on your side, the house always wins. I will also add that there is currently a ban as of April 4th on new permits. So he will still actively work to the law's extent and actively work with investors to get projects planned out for when the ban is lifted. So that way you're not necessarily waiting and waiting and waiting. So guys, 100%, I recommend Blackjack Contracting. I will say that finding the right contractor is sometimes a hassle and getting a good one that works with investors that 
understands the numbers is going to be critical in our success, especially when doing the birth strategy. And now back to the show. Wow. I mean, that's pretty good. So how did you, so let's talk about that building. So that's 80, Mm -hmm. you said 83 units, right? Yes. And you purchased that uh, when exactly? We bought that in, uh, we went firm on it. I think it was, I forget the exact month, but it was Q2 of 2020. Okay, so uh, Q2, Q2, 20... Q2, Q2, Q3, beginning of Q3, I think. Okay, so during, during the pandemic, during the, the oh, yeah. closures, all of that stuff. So let's, let's take a look at it. So obviously you, you found a really good deal. Um, how did you come across that deal? We had um, uh, a deal fall apart. It was mismanaged before. So the guy that bought it, um, <laughs> he, rather than renovating, so it's six buildings, six smaller buildings composed of anywhere from 12 to 16 units a building. And rather than fix each building and stabilize it, I don't know why this guy did this. He emptied the entire building and then started renovating. So when his financing partner found out what he did, um, he had a problem. <laughs> <laughs> he, he had a problem with it. Yes, uh, he wasn't paying trades. It, it was a mismanaged building. We got it privately through our network, basically. And you know, if you want to do the quick math on it, so we paid one six. We'll probably be a million into renos. That's two six. Um, when it's uh, stabilized with ninety and ninety, so ninety days uh, occupied at ninety percent, we'll have agency financing there. And the value will be at about four and a half to $5 million at a seven cap. So essentially we're going to be able to refinance, pull, you know, everything plus probably a couple hundred grand out and you've got a cash flow asset for, for life. Absolutely. So, okay. So just like, there's a lot of people that are like, their goal is to buy something of that size. So I really want to see mm-hmm. how, how much granular we can get. So you, you found it, it was obviously mismanaged. You closed on it. How did you close on it? What kind of financing did you get? Sure. So we, we put in, uh, we, we assumed the, uh, the vendor financing that he had at the time. So when he went uh, rogue with his existing lender, we took over the loan um, and we had to put in an additional, I think it was about a half a million dollars USD okay. uh, just to close on it. And then we had to fund the renos with cash. Okay. All right. And now are you bringing in investors to, or are you, are you using your own money for this to, to fund uh, the renos and to fund the rest of the, the down payment or essentially to, to close money? To yeah. Close? yeah. So a little bit of both. I mean, I have a bunch of guys that always want to do what I do with me. Um, guys that have, you know, guys and gals that I've known for quite a while. So typically, you know, we like to share the risk um, as long as I'm in the deal, they're in the deal kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we all threw in some cash, a couple hundred grand apiece, and yeah, uh, funded funded the acquisition, funded the renos, and then when we refinance, we'll obviously have our you know rata share. Yeah, awesome. So you're doing with a vendor, so a vendor take back essentially, or, or seller financing, or, or whatnot, whatever was in place prior. Let's just say whatever was in place prior was the financing that you got. Yeah, and then you are so you are going to go to a U.S. financial institution then to get the refinance. Is that is that the plan? Yeah, actually, so one more step before that, Sarah, we actually had, uh, and this is one of the beautiful things about certain markets when, when, when we decided to go to Tennessee, they have a program called a pilot program, which is a payment in lieu of taxes. So they have a, uh, the ability for you to freeze the property taxes mm-hmm. on a property that is in complete, uh, complete disrepair. And as long as you bring, bring that property back to uh, you know, a functional state, and bring revenues back into the community and tenants and provide housing, 
the city will actually allow you to keep your property taxes frozen. So Very cool. uh, that was a big deal. We applied for that. That's a 10 year property tax freeze as well. Wow. So, and, and just out of curiosity, like if you didn't do that, how much would the taxes be? On uh, like that? It would be about 60,000. Uh, right now they're about 10. Okay. All right. So it definitely is, is a nice, uh, you know, a nice number there that you don't have to worry about for a while. And what about the landlord rules or the tenant rules out that way? You know, are you able to get people out to do renos? Are you able to increase rents as you need? Um, how does that work out that way? Yeah, that's, that, that's actually a really good question because there's some states in the U.S. where you are SOL. You can't do anything. Right. Uh, Tennessee is very much like Texas, like uh, Florida and a few other states where you know, you have the ability to, it, it's landlord friendly. So obviously you're not going to do anything pernicious with your tenants, but you want to make sure that they have the ability to, you know, continue to pay to live there and obviously not be a burden on the community. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And, um, and then you know, just in terms of like splitting utilities or that kind of stuff, like I know in the, sometimes in the end, I don't know, you know how much detail we can go through, but I think it's just really interesting to, to sometimes have these podcasts yeah. where we can dissect something. Um, but, you know, in terms of like, for example, in Ontario, when we assume tenants, like let's just say you've got a building and you're assuming tenants, if the tenants are already paying, um, you know, a total that includes utilities, you can't split it and be like, oh, now you're mm-hmm. paying utilities and you're paying that separately. Um, how is it working for you guys? Um, and are you doing anything different, uh, you know, as you're turning over this building? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're fortunate because this building, actually, it's interesting. In addition to the utilities uh, on the electric already being split in the building, uh, all the units, I don't know if this is a Tennessee thing, because I'd never seen this anywhere else, but every unit has two front doors. So one through the kitchen and one through the living room. And you know, I, we had to insulate, obviously, and I was just thinking about that. But the utilities are separated. Uh, the only exception to that when we bought it were the water meters. But uh, what we did with that is we actually, and this is actually a really good tip for, for some of your listeners, if you're buying a building of any of any size, even two units or more, you got to see how the water main valves are set up because older buildings like this building that we bought had one water main valve turn off for the entire building. Wow. So it was 82 units on one <laughs> on one line. So, you know, it cost us a couple of bucks, but we dredged in front of every building and we sectioned it off. I don't think we did it per unit, but we did it per four doors to make sure that we can manage. And we also put little sensors in our, um, uh, in the little water main valves to make sure that when there's water, we know which of the four units in that entire quadrant is the culprit. Because fire isn't your worst enemy, water is. Water is worse. Fire, you can see, you can smell it. Water, it might take a minute. Hmm. That's, That's a great tip. Thanks for sharing that. So you've got, you know, a bunch of, of tenants, you're turning them over, you're renovating the units, you're putting mm-hmm. you know, a few thousand in to, to lift it and, and re-rent it at a higher amount. Well, you know, what kind of, of tenant, profile, uh, tenant profile are you going after? Are you doing any like section, is it section eight tenants? Are you doing, you know, catering to, to certain ones over another or are you just kind of seeing what's, uh, what's out there out that way? Yeah, so Section 8 housing is something that we've looked at. Uh, we, we did get approved for, for it because it is a program. We, you know, because the housing, as, as your audience probably knows, uh, there's class A, B, and C housing. And in the U.S. in particular, the C housing is segregated into, I'd say, two sections. One is the Section 8 housing and one is workforce housing. And workforce is 
uh, it's not subsidized by the government and it's not a charity case. It's not a, uh, all it is, is it's, it's clean, safe, affordable housing, but you typically don't have the bells and whistles. Like you don't put a swimming pool there. Uh, you typically don't have the, uh, you know, the higher end finishes in the units. You typically have laminate, you don't have hardwood, you don't have stainless steel appliances, but you know, the, so, so to answer your question, our, our tenant profile is the typical uh, Amazon worker that makes between 15 and $18 an hour, maybe somebody that works at FedEx, uh, maybe a nurse's aide, um, somebody that works for the city in sanitation, you know, people that are starting out younger families, uh, you know, our rents, two beds, one baths are coming in at, like I said, $700. The next step above that, if you want to stay in multifamily is class B and you're closer to a thousand. And then in class A, you're, you know, you're $1,200, $1,600. So, you know, where we're, where we're at is we're essentially providing people clean, safe, and, and affordable housing, which they need. Mm-hmm. Now, we still run credit checks. We still look at the criminal record checks, you know, because we are running, you know, a, a community. For, and in the for, U.S., you're allowed tenants. to do the criminal record check. <laughs> yes. Yes. You're also allowed to do, I don't, I'm not sure if this is uh, uh, ubiquitous across the country, but you can do uh, sex offender checks as well. Hmm. So, uh, you know, we, we obviously want to incorporate that as well. Just make sure you have a, you know, a, a good uh, community because, you know, people that have certain, you know, I'm not here to debate people's history, but at the end of the day, if a mom goes online and checks the proximity of where certain people live, I'd rather that proximity not be in my building. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey everyone, I just wanted to pause and share with you a financing tip that helped me scale my portfolio and can also help you as well. By working with Streetwise Mortgages, I took a strategic goals-based versus a transactional approach to financing and they've helped me develop a financing roadmap that aligned with my goals and gave me some crystal clear clarity on where the money will come from to grow, how to maximize my borrowing power, how to structure future deals and avoid some costly mistakes, saving me thousands along the way. The financing roadmap is complimentary for every client who works with Streetwise and also Very recently, they've offered an additional summary report of the best to invest 18 Ontario markets and also a comprehensive deep dive research into a market of your choice out of those 18. I highly recommend that you take them up on that offer. If you're looking to grow your portfolio, to book a planning session and develop your financing roadmap, email info at streetwisemortgages.com. That is info at streetwisemortgages.com. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. And now back to the show. Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. I mean, I would, I would likely do the same as you anyways. You might as well yeah. create that, that feel of you know, security and, and safety. Yeah, so the first thing we did when we bought it, I'll share this with you, mm. is because perception is reality with your tenants. And when we bought this property, I don't have any images here, but there was the front gate was non-existent. It was this big driveway and you could literally drive a bus one lane and the other lane. First thing we did is we put up a 10-foot wrought iron gate right across the front and then we patched it up with chain link as it went around the, uh, the, the outside. We had fobs for key, keyless entry. So that package cost us, uh, you know, I think we paid for it before iron doubled in price. So I, I think we've made money on the gate, actually, if I think about it. But, but <laughs> if, we, if we melted it now. But, but that perception as you pull up to the property is that this is a safe place to live. And that's really important. Yeah, especially to attract uh, the tenants that you want. 
Now, what is an average vacancy rate outside out that way? I mean, you know, sometimes you look at the U.S. and it's you know it's not as as crazy in terms of, of a shortage of uh, opportunities as you know places in Ontario as for, as for mm-hmm. example. So I don't think it's two percent, but what are you seeing is the average vacancy rates out in Memphis? So on paper, and I say on paper because we certainly haven't experienced this, but on paper it's about four, I think four to five percent. Okay, so it's uh, and that's. Yeah, but I can tell you on the affordable side with the class B or C housing, workforce housing, I don't know if there's any vacancy at all. I mean, we were, my partner and I, we were at IHOP last time I was there. We were just sitting, shooting the breeze and the waiter walks by and he goes, wait, are you guys doing that property down the street? We're like, yeah. He goes, okay, great. My wife and I were, and he just starts pitching us on why he'd be a great tenant. I mean, and, 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 and that's, you know, I think we got his application, but the point is, is there's, that's a good problem to have and it demonstrates demand. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that guy could probably go out and pay 900 or a thousand dollars, but if they can pay 700 and put away two, 300 bucks, that's Mm -hmm. a good deal. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, and, and put good tenants in there, ones that aren't going to be, you know, prone to, to causing problems. And I think it's just easier. So obviously with a big building like that or, or multiple larger options and larger units, you really have to be buttoned up in management mm-hmm. and having a team likely on the spot uh, there physically, you know, I don't know how many hours or if they live there, but how are you, how are you setting that up with that, uh, with so many units? So it's interesting because uh, after we bought the 82 units, we got to know there's three, four buildings in the area owned by three different uh, people. And we got to know one of them really well. And wouldn't you know it, he was tired of being an active real estate investor. So guy had made a ton of money in real estate, knew what he had, didn't want to finish what he had going on in his property. And we actually ended up buying his property too. So it was 178 units nice. and literally across the street from ours. So what we've done is we've actually cross-purposed our property management from our property to their property, retained some of his people and the contractors. And to, to your point, Sarah, now we have one property manager for all 260 doors, uh, literally right across the street from each other. And we've, you know, we consciously decided to bring all of that in-house. Yeah, that makes sense. So for somebody that's, you know, thinking about how to do that, like, like who is it that you're bringing in-house? How many people do you need? Um, you know, and, and I don't know if you have like a list of a few people that you can share that you're like, these are the people that we had to hire for this many buildings. Yeah. So it, de- it depends on, it, so it depends on where you're buying in the, uh, the real estate cycle. So for example, we're not a developer, but we're also not buying turnkey. Mm-hmm. We're kind of in between We're that value add player. So there's a different skill set that you need when you're doing value add compared to just buying turnkey, because if you buy turnkey, chances are you're buying at full market and it's going to be really hard to burr something or, you know, create an infinite cash flow deals. I like to call it when you're buying something that's already turnkey because it's already priced to perfection. Yeah. And you've got, you've got to have deep pockets to be able to say, you know, you're okay with leaving a chunk of money in there <laughs> that you can't refinance for a very, very long time. So yeah, you know, turn turnkey. I mean, again, there's some investors that, you know, that's what they look for, but you know, I, I I agree with you, Marcin. Um, I like the value add. I like the Burr option and, and being able to, you know, reutilize the equity or the money that's created for the next deal. Yeah. Well, and Sarah, to your point is, as I get older and I start to accumulate some of the grays in my, uh, 
in my uh, hair here. Uh, the turnkey stuff is looking more and more attractive <laughs> <laughs> because uh, it is, it's still work. I mean, look, turning a unit over and getting 50 or $75 or picking up $100 on the rent is still valuable. There's still great ways to do it that way. But that, that, that middle piece, um, that value add is, is really where you create that, you know, lowest, in my opinion, lowest risk versus mm -hmm. best return. Yeah. Um, so, so as far as people that you need on your team, I mean, aside from the obvious resident manager, community manager, you know, essentially your onsite property manager. And, and when you have that many units, uh, and this is my bias now, I don't think you can have somebody in an office that just comes out whenever there's an issue. Mm -hmm. I'm more of a hands-on guy and I, I would prefer my resident manager to be on site nine to five, Monday to Friday. And you have your list of people that can show up literally in an instant when there's a flood, when there's a, whatever it is, because the most expensive thing, and, and you know this, the most expensive thing is tenant turnover, because when you have that unit vacant, first of all, you lose rent. You probably have to replace the carpet. You might have some other damages to the property. You now have to waste people's time to go show the unit. And it's not really just a month. It's so much more than that month. Mm -hmm. to, to, to clean up that unit. So I will, so I will agree with you, but I will also disagree with you. It depends. I think it really depends on where you are investing. So like if you're investing mm -hmm. in a spot where you can increase rents as, as needed to market rents, absolutely tenant turnover. You probably don't want mm -hmm. for a place in Ontario. I mean, if you've got a tenant that's been there for 10 years and they, or like five years even, and sometimes even three years and they're like, Hey, you know, I'm going to give my notice to get out. Like I like have a party <laughs> because I'm so excited. <laughs> I don't mind paying the grand to fix things and turn things around or whatever the cost is because I know that as soon as they leave, I'm increasing that rent three, four, five, six hundred dollars a month and I'll get it back in no time. So you're right in that context. I'm more thinking along the lines of when my lease comes up and if it's going from 625 to 645, that's mm -hmm. already built in. And because of the tenant laws, that's already part of part of the formula but in your Absolutely. case yeah you're right if it, the tenant moves where, out after 10 years it depends where you're investing right i think that's why like some of the u.s investing makes sense because you can you can increase rents to market every single year of what you need and and you don't have those restrictions like some other markets so it it, it really is dependent on on market for sure yeah well the other thing too is you know for anybody listening here i mean you know raising rents to market is not something that's evil or to be frowned upon. I mean, you have to look at it. It's a business. It's a, it's mm -hmm. a two-way street. And I mean, we've actually had tenants um, in, in past deals that I've done where they live on site and they've actually offered to be groundskeepers. They've offered to help. They've offered to do things. So there's, 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 there's all kinds of ways that you can work with your tenants. But at the end of the day, if the market is X, then that's what it should be because you need to be compensated to actually keep the property in good working order. That's yeah. what it should be. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got a team in place. So what is your role? So you said you mentioned a partner, you know, your partner is over there more feet on the street. You're here. And, you know, what are your, each of your roles and how do you divide all of that? Yeah, that's a good question. So his is very much a boots on the uh, ground role, uh, day to day, uh, looking at new opportunities, looking at deals uh, from a, from a, sort of 30,000 foot view, how it fits the portfolio, making sure that the day-to-day -day operations are sol solid. Um, I'm on the capital side and the finance side. Um, I'm more than happy to be parachuted and in the, in, in the trenches doing that, but he's already got a great handle of that. So my role is to go out, identify opportunities to either recapitalize the business, 
uh, work with investment partners, financing partners. Uh, I have a private equity background, so that's sort of where I've spent my history. And the other thing is that working with getting, you know, uh, tax assessments or getting the bond programs, you know, uh, communications, building the infrastructure, the culture internally. Uh, there's a business, real estate is a business. And I know you know that, Sarah. So you can't just have a really good real estate guy any more than you can have a really good business guy. You need to have the business behind what people think the business actually is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, and, and it sounds like you guys complement each other, right? So you're not do, both doing the exact same things. You're, you're, you know, doing a lot more of the organizing finances, oh. organizing that kind of stuff. And he's, he's feet on the street, but I think that's, that's the important to not be both doing the exact same thing, but to see what makes, you know, makes sense for each person to do so that you can split the tasks. Well, the other thing that's that's important to acknowledge is that on the on the on the syndication side, which effectively is is what we're doing, we're syndicating larger projects. There's really two components of it, and and they don't have to be mutually exclusive. And and what I mean by that is, operators. So the general partner typically is composed of operations and capital. And the thing is, is you want to have every transaction set up as its own transaction because at the end of the day, if one day he gets hit by a bus or I get hit by a bus every deal is its own transaction. So every time we buy a building, we set up a new company, we, uh, we split the work and we move forward. And maybe one day we decide, you know what, we've had enough in Memphis or we've had enough of each other or we've had enough, just whatever it is. At the end of the day, every building is its own asset. And that's, that, that's really important to, mm-hmm. to differentiate because if you're ever bringing on investment partners, they need to see the separation of where they're, uh, involvement in uh, what you're doing is limited to, because that's important as well. Yeah, absolutely. And and you mentioned syndication, and I can't remember. I think we might have covered it a little bit the first time that you came on. But you know, if somebody is wondering what what a syndicate, what is a syndication, what does that mean, and how you set that up, are you able to just give us a bit of an overview on that? Sure. I mean, syndicating a real estate transaction means different things in different countries, but essentially, it's the act of doing a deal that requires more capital than you personally have. <laughs> and if you have, or, or than you're personally willing to put into one transaction. So for example, my favorite structure is a limited partner, general partner, GP, LPGP structure. Uh, and we did that in such a way where uh, we were able to separate the Canadian investors from any potential U.S. investors. And from a Canadian investor standpoint, have no disclosure, not disclosure, pardon me, no tax filing requirements on the U.S. side. So they have exposure to U.S. assets. They have no U.S. tax filing obligations, which is a very big deal for somebody who's never filed with the IRS. They don't want to start, <laughs> right? Um, but syndication, there's, you know, I work with lawyers. I work with accountants. There, there's rules to it. It's a highly regulated space. But, um, you know, if someone is committed enough to learning it, you can learn it. But like anything else, it, it's going to take a minute. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like you've got, you know, money partners that invest their money into a big fund and then you take that, that cash and you deploy it into, uh, you know, whether it's the acquisition of, of a project or the renovations of a project and all that stuff. So are you giving them like a, re- like, a, we don't need to talk about return numbers, but are you giving them a return or are you giving them like an equity share of the profits? How are you doing that? Well, you sound like my lawyer now. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, you know what? It's so, we don't do we don't dissect deals very often, but I think it's going to be very yeah. interesting for somebody listening. Yeah, how it all gets pieced together. So, I mean, this goes. You know, I don't know if we're going to be able to do it justice on just a, you know thirty minute call here, but ultimately, you need to look at a transaction from an investor standpoint. What's in it for them? And you know, it's interesting because I, I I do some coaching with some real estate guys that you know have a building or two and want to learn how to raise their next million or, or five million bucks, and so. F- so few of them think about it from the investor's perspective. They're just thinking about, okay, I got to do this deal. I got to get done. Um, okay. Who wants to invest? And then people are just like, there's no expectations. There's no clear format. So to answer your question, Sarah, in, in my, this is my opinion. In my opinion, any investor that's going to invest in a syndicated real estate offering should be able to generate, there, there, there should be a reasonable expectation that they're going to generate double digit returns per annum. Now, they may not get that all at once. They might get it on the refinance or on the sale. But personally, I wouldn't do a transaction unless I thought an investor, myself as well, would have a reasonable chance to make good double-digit returns. Is it 12%? Is it 20%? It's deal by deal. You know, there's so many variables. Mm -hmm. But but at the end of the day, if you start with, okay, um, what is the expectation for return for the investor and and you have a number in your head let's say it's 15 percent. then what you do is you work that backwards and you think to yourself how do i get to 15 percent for the investor is it going to be a split on the back end is it going to be some kind of a high watermark up front uh, i call it a preferred return you know how do we do it um, in my case uh, you know from from private equity what i've seen is that typically what people do is they build in what's called a preferred return and it could be anywhere from four to maybe six, seven percent, uh, and that's an annual preferred return that's accrued for the money. So whether you put in money, I put whoever puts in the money, they automatically accrue that upfront first. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean it's being paid out because maybe there's no cash flow yet because you're, you're renovating or or whatever, but that accrues, and for the money. And then after you uh, account for that. And whether you pay it out or continue to accrue it beyond that, there should be a split. Now, I've seen splits as much as, you know, 60-40 for the managing partners and 40% for the investors. And I've seen it all the way where it's 80% for the investors and 20% for the managing partners. So, you know, somewhere in between is probably right. If you have a deal where the investor gets everything and the managers don't get anything, eventually they're just going to say, screw it. Like, I, I, I'm not incentivized to work. Yeah. But at the same time, I don't know how I would feel about taking the bulk of the profit, you know, as a partner compared to my investor getting less. So, you know, somewhere in between is probably the right answer. And, you know, if you combine the profit and the preferred return, you know, does, you know, without you using optimistic numbers as, 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 as the syndicator, because that's another thing you, you know, I know when I started in real estate, I would sit there and I'd go, Hmm, these numbers suck. What if I increase the rent by 200 bucks? <laughs> and then all of a sudden it looks amazing, right? But you're, you're lying to yourself, right? So as long as you're using reasonable numbers and it all flows through and, and, and you know, with your splits, it looks like the investor is getting a great return and you, you're using fair assumptions for, you know, all the different components, then, you know, that's a good place to start because smart investors are going to expect you to walk them through your logic. Absolutely. Well, thanks for sharing that. That was awesome. Mm-hmm. Before we get into our lightning round, 
just curious, what's next for you? I mean, you're working on all of these things. Are you, are you continuing to look and are you continuing to acquire? Or are you really focusing on, on these two large deals at this point in time? Yeah. So, you know, we've got, we've got our eyes out. Uh, we might look at doing one more acquisition at some point this year. It's, uh, you know, we've still got a few months here in 20, uh, you know, in the year here. So we might end up looking at another acquisition, probably comparable size. Uh, the other thing too, that I've actually started doing a fair bit and I'm enjoying it is uh, working with some of the, you know, real estate friends that I have, you know, I've started doing some I've never done the coaching thing before, but I've always kind of done it. So I'm kind of doing some of that with people that one guy's got a couple hundred doors. He's trying to figure out how to take that to the next level. Another person has 20 doors. So you know, I'm doing a fair bit of that. Uh, COVID is obviously keeping me at home. So anytime I can talk to people and, and they want to listen, that, that that's nice. Um, and uh, yeah, just keep doing more real estate, keep helping people out. And yeah, started doing, uh, you know, trainings on a monthly basis and people can check that out on my website. And yeah, I, I think we're just going to keep doing more of that. Awesome. That sounds great. All right. So Marcin, we're going to do the lightning round. Your questions that you, and you probably answered them a couple years ago, but uh, maybe your answers have changed. So are you ready to play the lightning round? Let's do it. This week's lightning round is brought to you by Megan Chomut. If you're looking for a great financial advisor to add to your team who actually understands and incorporates real estate as part of your overall plan and gets your money working for you, you can reach out to Megan at meganchomut.com forward slash Sarah. And also she's offering for my podcast listeners to provide you with a free customized individualized 90 day game plan for getting ahead. So to get that, go to meganchomut.com forward slash Sarah. That's M-E-G-H-A-N-C-H-O-M-U-T.com forward slash Sarah. And now back to the show. All right. So question number one, what is your favorite real estate investing book? Ooh. <laughs> There's a lot of real estate books. Can I give you my favorite book right now? Just, sure. just, just in general. In general, yeah, let's do it. I, I'm reading a book right. I just actually finished a book called uh, Relentless by Tim Grover, and he uh, he was the guy who was uh, the coach to Kobe and Michael Jordan. And for me, I needed that book because sitting at home, you know, I was uh, let's just say some of my physical habits were not in line with my mental habits. <laughs> Awesome. All right, cool. Well, I'll have to uh, check out that book. Now, I don't know if you're a podcast listener, but question number two, it doesn't have to be real estate related. Do you have a favorite podcast? Oh, man. You know what? I'm listening to, I don't know if I have a favorite, but I'm absorbing a lot of macroeconomic financial theory stuff with what's going on with all the printing money and the inflation. Uh, George Gammon is somebody I'm listening to a lot right now. Peter Schiff. Um, and then I also look at the other side, like I'm listening to Bernie Sanders and like, I want to hear the extreme one way and the extreme other way, because nowadays there's just so much going on out there that I'm just, yeah, I'm kind of listening to all kinds of far right and far left stuff right now. Well, not, not far right, but you know what I mean? Like, just, It's important to balance out the conversation, right? We can't believe yeah. everything that we hear from the radio or the news. So we've got to, you know, listen to both sides. Well, that's one thing I'm definitely not doing. I'm not watching the news in Good. Canada. I am not interested. <laughs> Don't do it. It's an instant mood changer for the worst. Yeah. Yeah. Question number three, what do you do for fun aside from work in real estate? I am doing push-ups. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's considered I, fun, but it's sure. No, no, no. Just, just, just hear me out, okay? Sure. I, uh, I've, been, I've been at home because I used to go to the gym like everyone else all the time. Yeah. And then you stop going to the gym, so I... I um, it was pointed out to me that I was getting soft in certain areas. 
So I, I, so what's fun now, at least I'm brainwashing myself into telling it, telling myself it's fun is I'm learning how to work out at home with like furniture and the dog and like all kinds of stuff. So cool. Awesome. Question number four, if you lost all of your assets and all of your money tomorrow, how would you start again? Oh, that's a good one. You did ask me that one before. What did I tell you? You know what I would, uh, what I would do is I would find the people I would find people that I can make rich and go make them rich because at the end of the day, there's certain people that I know I can help and anybody who's in real estate, anybody who's got a skill set, I would literally be able to take those people and find ways to make them rich. Like I got started in real estate by collecting four sale signs when I was 19 for a realtor. That's how I got my foot in the door. Like I had no business. you know, no family, no contacts in real estate. So I just literally went to work for free. Um, and I'd probably go do that again. I'd find somebody who's making a ton of money, go make myself useful, work for free, and pretty quickly figure out how to capitalize on that. Awesome. Awesome. And I didn't, I don't know if I knew that that's how you got started, but that's cool. Mm-hmm. Okay. Awesome. And last question. If somebody has $50,000 and I'm thinking one day I'm going to have to raise it from because of inflation and all the money that we're printing. But if somebody <laughs> has $50,000 today, uh, how would you recommend that they spend it to get started? You're right. 50,000 seems to mean a little bit less now than I feel than like when I first started this show, it was still, yeah, <laughs> it, it was felt like more. <laughs> it's funny. I, when, when I, my grand, so I grew up in communist Poland and my grandma once gave me a $10,000 bill back in the late eighties to go to the grocery store. I thought I was rich uh, $10,000 because they debased the dollar so hard. Uh, I think I got a few lollipops and a bag of chips. And that was 10,000. And then when they finally rolled the Polish dollar back uh, to, it was called remuneration. It was literally a remuneration of 10,000 to one. That's what happened. It was, uh, but anyway, uh, $50,000, let's assume you can, you know, do stuff with it. Let's say Canadian dollars, 50 Canadian dollars. Okay. 50,000 Canadian dollars. So, you know, 50 grand in of itself is not, going to allow you to retire as a passive investor. I mean, you can invest 50 grand and even if you get, you know, 10% on your money or 20% on your money, that's five or 10 grand a year. That's not enough for you to, you know, retire or really plan your life around. So $50,000, I would take that money and I would definitely invest it in an asset, but also get an education. So what I mean by that is if you're going to invest 50 grand in real estate, do it with somebody that you can learn from somebody you can work with somebody you can partner with somebody that yes you've got 50 grand invested in an asset and part of an apartment building part of a house part of a cottage whatever it is but you're also working on that deal so you develop a skill set that's what i would do awesome great answers marcin where can my listeners reach out and find out more about you uh, best place is my website, uh, marcindros.com. And I'm on all the Instagrams and Facebooks and all the different stuff. And uh, yeah, if people, I've got tons of content and videos and webinars that people can attend if they want to learn. Uh, check us out. Amazing. Thank you, Marcin, for being on the show. It was a pleasure having you back again. And uh, congrats on your, your two very large acquisitions. That's awesome. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Hey guys, before you go, I wanted to ask you a question. What's stopping you from starting or growing your own real estate investment portfolio? I know for me, before I started, I had plenty of reasons and at the time they all seemed very valid, but as I started my journey, these reasons slowly fell away and eventually only one reason remained. 
What was actually stopping me was having a proven, actionable, repeatable system. I didn't have that. And the way that was going to change was by investing in myself, learning, listening, and looking for ways that worked. And also, most importantly, discovering what didn't and not making those mistakes again. Fast forward to today, I now have a proven, repeatable series of action steps that has enabled me to build my seven-figure portfolio consisting of multiple homes, and I'm able to manage that in two to three hours a month. Is that something that you would want? Well, I've actually taken all the knowledge I've accumulated and put that into a comprehensive step-by-step online program. It's called Rise, and it's a program that will help you from where you are now to where you want to be faster and with less of the headaches that I had. So it consists of all the templates and the resources that I use, plus over 40 instructional videos that you get lifetime access to for just a small one-time investment. And, you know, my recommendation is to make the time now to invest in yourself and grow your portfolio to seven figures so that you can bring your retirement dreams closer. If you want some more information about Rise, just go to sarahlarby.com forward slash R-I-S-E to access more details and book your spot. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.